Happy New Year, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online from wherever you are and we're your New Year's resolution. That's kind of a cool thing. We'd like to be somebody's New Year's resolution. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a great day. And also, Michigan State fans, I salute you. There was a game, a little basketball game at Breslin, and it was a train wreck, but yours was less of a train wreck than ours, so we lost. And that's great. That's okay. Jesus loves us all. Just get it out there. All right. Anyway, today we get to begin a new series in the new year that, to be honest, has been years in the making for me. And, and here's why I say that. Um, I have spent the better part of almost two decades teaching the Bible almost every week. And practically that means I've spent like thousands of hours reading it and studying it and writing about it. And, and along the way, I've discovered a few things that I really think you should know if you're going to make reading the Bible a regular part of your faith journey. And I really hope that during the series, I convince you to do just that. And, and so in this series, what I want to do is explore six things that once you understand them, will help you read the Bible in the way it was intended to be read. And so before we get to our first thing, I just want to make a couple of general observations about the Bible because it really is a fascinating piece of literature. I mean, if you think about it, it has been without question the most influential printed document of all time. And it's shaped religious belief and practice for millions of people for thousands of years all over the world. But here's the thing. I'm convinced that the Bible is not actually what many people think that it is. And, and before you, you know, deem me a heretic, hear me out. Uh, this is what I mean. I'll put it up on the screen. Though the Bible looks like a book, and if you grew up in church with like pew Bibles, you've held these things, right? Looks like a book. It doesn't read like a book because it isn't really a book. And so if it's not a book, but it looks like a book, what is it? It's more like a collection or a small library of 66 books written over 1,500 years by around 40 authors. And, and these authors, I think it's worth noting, were real people living in real places at real times and who were influenced by real social, political, and cultural contexts in which they operated and in which they wrote. And, and I'm telling you, almost more than anything else, just keeping that in mind will help you approach the various documents in the Bible with the proper expectations. And, and so uh, for the next few weeks, what I want to do is unpack some of the specifics of what I mean by that. And I can't wait. In fact, when we started pitching this series, it was going to be the four things that you should know about the Bible. And then I found another one. I was like, okay, I got to do the fifth one. And then it was, then I was like, all right, okay, we got to go six. And then Randy, the lovable executive pastor, is like, okay, six is plenty. And I'm like, but we could take it right through Easter. And he, and he said no. So anyway, what I want to do with our time together today is talk about how the Bible is organized, like at the very highest level, and, and then a little more practically, why it is, well, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament can at times seem to be different gods. And maybe you've noticed that if you've tried to read the Old Testament before. Um, I mean, let's be honest, there are some times in the Old Testament that God seems to tell people to do things well, that don't seem very Jesus-y, right? I mean, have you noticed this? Like, I'll give you an example. Take, for example, this instruction given to the children of Israel shortly before they enter the land that God had promised to their ancestors. So they're about to take the land, and Moses, their leader, tells them this piece of instruction. 
in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So far, so good. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. <laughs> and then he says, completely destroy them, in case you missed about the not breathing part, right? Just level them. And, and obviously, um, this is a bit harsh. And if you've ever read this passage, you probably thought something like, well, I guess I know why I've never seen that verse on a coffee mug at a Christian bookstore, right? I mean, actually, I was thinking first, that could be a great fundraiser for us. We could just put Deuteronomy 2016 on mugs and just carry them around, see if people read them and be like, man, that is an interesting church. And we are. Yeah, yeah. So what are we supposed to do with this? And like, how are we supposed to reconcile it with Jesus' instructions to his followers to do things like, well, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Like, what are we supposed to do with this tension? And as it turns out, this is not a new tension that people have noticed. I mean, this has been noticed since the very beginning of the church. In fact, around the year 140 AD, there was a Christian leader named Marcion who began to teach that the wrathful God of the Old Testament and the all-loving God of the New Testament were, in fact, different gods. And, and he even went as far as to assemble his own version of the Bible. That's kind of bold, right? And he took, like, selections from Luke's account of the life of Jesus and ten of Paul's letters and not one word from the Old Testament. And uh, to be fair, the teachings of Marcion were declared to be heretical by the church around the year 200. But that doesn't change the fact that today, around a or 1,800 years later, people still struggle to reconcile the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And, and I would argue that we really need to get right what Marcion got wrong if we're going to read the Bible in the way that it was intended to be read. Okay, so now to that end, I want to introduce you to something today called a covenant. And in ancient times, a covenant was an agreement that defined the terms of a relationship between two parties. And as it turns out, the Bible's authors record a couple of different covenants than at, that at times defined the terms of relationship between people and God. In fact, you might even say, and I like to, that the Bible is organized around three major covenants. And, and though you don't realize it, you're already familiar with two of them. Uh, we call them the Old Covenant or Old Covenant. Testament and the New Covenant or the New Testament. But, but there are three major covenants around which the Bible is organized. And with the rest of our time together, what I want to do is introduce you or maybe reintroduce you to each of these three covenants. And then I want to talk a little bit about why being able to identify the covenant under which a particular Bible passage was written can really help us to read it properly, to understand it, and at times to apply it. Okay, so like the first covenant of interest that we find in the Bible was one that was established around 4,000 years ago between God and a man named Abraham who eventually became the father of the nation of Israel. Uh, God first makes contact with Abraham late in Abraham's life and makes him an absolutely incredible set of promises. He says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. He said, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And then he says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
And, and again, incredible promises. And you should know that at this moment in history, God's promises really wouldn't have made any sense to Abraham for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, he and his wife Sarah had never been able to have children. And they were well past the age when conception should have been possible. And second, even if his descendants were to somehow become a nation, which is a stretch, Abraham would think, well, but ancient peoples simply don't bless one another, like ever. Uh, they conquer one another, they plunder one another, and they enslave one another, but they don't bless one another. So these promises would have seemed impossible to Abraham, so much so that eventually he questions God, like how can I know that this is going to happen? And in response, God does something really unexpected, at least to us. So here's how the author of Genesis described what happens. After informing Abraham that in order to activate these promises, uh, God required his total obedience in any and all matters, which of course would have been impossible. Here's what God tells Abraham. He says, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. And a few of you just thought, yeah, this is why I don't read the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Bring me, uh, yeah. Uh, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Like cut the animals nose to tail, pulled the halves apart, and then positioned them opposite each other. He said, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. He says, when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And just, I was Googling this week and I found an artist's rendering of what that might have looked like. This artist obviously has a lot of free time. Just throwing it out there, right? Um, yeah, and again, this is, you were thinking, yeah, this is why I don't read the Old Testament. I mean, what is going on with the animals and the smoking firepot and the blazing torch? And to show you what's going on in this passage, I need to give you sort of a history lesson within a history lesson. Because everyone in Abraham's world who heard this story would have immediately understood that in this moment, God was establishing a covenant with Abraham. And moreover, the terms of this covenant were completely unprecedented. I mean, in Abraham's world, people generally believed that the gods were angry and insecure and temperamental beings. And, and so they would offer these gods like a constant flow of animal sacrifices in an attempt to stave off divine judgment. But see, in the account of Abraham's life, well, we're introduced to a God who desires to enter into a relationship with a human being, to walk with them in order to bless them and then through them to bless the world. Like I'm telling you, historically speaking, this moment was absolutely stunning. But, but that's not all, because typically in ancient covenants, well, each of the two parties entering the covenant would walk the path of blood made by the slaughter of the animals. So as if to say to the other, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, I'll pay with my blood. And so you can just imagine as Abraham prepared the animals that God had requested, he would have been terrified. He would have been thinking, like, as soon as I dip my toe into this blood... I'm as good as dead because there's no way I can live in complete obedience to a God that I basically just met. But, but here's the thing, and this is absolutely incredible. Again, in Abraham's vision, God never asks him to walk the blood path. 
Instead, God is represented by the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch walks it twice. And to Abraham, the message would have been clear. Whether he or God failed to keep up their end of the covenant, God would pay with his blood somehow. And just let that sink in for a moment. I mean, this was an absolutely breathtaking expression of amazing grace. And then notice um, a couple other things about this covenant with Abraham. First, the covenant with Abraham was unilateral and unconditional. In other words, it didn't depend at all on Abraham's faithfulness. It only depended on the faithfulness of God. In fact, all that was required of Abraham was for him to trust or to believe or to place his faith in the fact that God would do what he said he would do. And, and just hang on to that. It, it becomes important a bit later. But, but for now, that's the first covenant that you need to understand if you're going to read the Bible as was intended to be read. Uh, the second covenant between God and people that we need to dis discuss was established 500 years later, around 3,500 years ago. Um, and, and here's kind of how it went down. Eventually, Abraham has some descendants. And they migrate to Egypt during a famine where they're fruitful and multiply in numbers until they become kind of a nation-sized population. And Egypt's ruler at the time, a man named Pharaoh, uh, fears this growing presence of this nation, and he enslaves them. And in response, Abraham's descendants cry out to God. And in response to that cry, God recruits a man named Moses and sends him to Pharaoh with a message to let his people go. And after a bit of highly creative arm twisting that we don't have time to get into today, Pharaoh does just that. And 50 days later, Abraham's descendants find themselves standing at the foot of a mountain in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, awaiting God's instructions to them, the God who had just rescued them. He was going to give them rules by which they were to organize their life together and rules that, as it turns out, represented a very different sort of covenant. So here's how God described it to the people. He said, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. I'm going to set you apart on purpose, for a purpose. And then he tells them, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there's another covenant. Uh, Bible scholars describe this covenant kind of in technical terms as a bilateral suzerainty treaty. And this is your vocab word for today. We'll be coming back to it. So there'll be a quiz, right? Um, but the scholars tell us that in the ancient world, this was a type of agreement that was awfully, uh, often entered by two unequal parties. Uh, the greater party was called the suzerain, and they got to dictate the terms to the lesser party. So in this case, God, who is obviously the greater power, says to the people, if you keep my commands, then I will bless you, and then I will keep you safe. But and this is a critical distinction. This covenant also worked the other way. It was bilateral. 
In other words, if Israel didn't keep their end of the deal, then God was under absolutely no obligation to keep his. What's more, I think it's worth noting that the covenant at Sinai was made between God and the entire nation of ancient Israel and not individuals within that nation. And so practically, this meant that individuals who held to the terms of the covenant even perfectly could still be punished because of the disobedience of Israel's leaders. And so it's, it's kind of fun. To, the author of Exodus actually gives us um, the response of the people to this proposal from God. And so after receiving the terms of the Sinai covenant, again, the author records that the people of ancient Israel responded like in one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And, and which sounds great, but of course they didn't. <laughs> And we wouldn't have either before you're too harsh on them. And, and to make matters even more interesting, God knew that they wouldn't because he knew that they couldn't. And in fact, the rest of the Old Testament chronicles ancient Israel's cycle of departing from and then returning to the ways of God along with corresponding seasons of blessing and cursing. The cursing always to bring them back to their calling. And that reality that that happened over and over again, if we're honest, raises a really great question. I mean, what was the purpose of this bilateral covenant, especially given that ancient Israel had absolutely no ability to keep it perfectly because they were humans? And if you dig into that, scholars suggest that God wanted his chosen people to understand something that they couldn't understand any other way, namely that they couldn't fully escape from the power and consequences of sin through their own efforts. That if they were ever going to truly be free, they were going to need to be rescued. Anyway, the, the covenant at Sinai defined a significant aspect of God's relationship with the nation of Israel for around 1,500 years. And I think it's worth noting that though the nation of Israel repeatedly broke this covenant, God remained faithful to his promise to their ancestor Abraham to one day bless the world through his descendants. Okay, so that's like the second covenant that we should understand. We're going to read the Bible as it was intended to be written. Uh, for covenant number three, we need to fast forward to the last night of Jesus' life around 2,000 years ago. Because on that night, he informed his disciples that he had come to establish a new covenant between people and God, one that would forever define the terms of relationship between God and not just the nation of Israel, but all people everywhere. And so here's how it kind of went down. Immediately following a very special annual ceremonial meal that commemorated Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt, Jesus took a cup of wine in his hands and, and raised it up and looked at his disciples, and he said this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I, I like to imagine the disciples, as they sat there at the end of that meal, and they would have been beyond confused. I, I mean, obviously, they would have thought, well, Israel already is in a covenant with God. It was the one that was made at Mount Sinai. It's been that way for 1,500 years and moreover, Jesus identified this new covenant as being ratified well, by his blood being poured out, but he wasn't bleeding at the Last Supper. And, and 
I mean, if they had thought about it, if they had a little more time, they might have gone back to like when they were kids, learning the Old Testament, learning about the ancient prophets of Israel. And, and maybe they would have remembered that there was a new covenant that had been prophesied. It had been described by a man named Jeremiah who passed along a message from God to the people of God. Jeremiah lived 600 years before the time of Jesus. And during a time of rebellion by the people of Israel, Jeremiah had passed on this message from God. God had told the people, I think is a way to give them hope. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant like over and over and over and over again. And he says, well, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. He said, this is the new deal. I will put my law in their minds. And instead of writing it on stone tablets, I'll write it on their hearts. It's, it's going to be on the inside. He says, I will be their God. And they will be my people. And then look at this. This is just unbelievable. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And obviously, the, I mean, the prophecy here was a bit cryptic and left the people of Israel with far more questions than answers. And like the religious leaders endlessly debated, like, how would this happen and what would this look like? Because to them, anytime there was sin, blood had to be spilled. But I think, I just imagine from the perspective of those disciples that night, they started to put the pieces together. And Jesus basically said to them that, his blood was going to be leveraged to bring about this long-promised new covenant. And, and according to Jeremiah, this new covenant would be very different from the one that had been established at Sinai because it would not require the full obedience on the part of the people of Israel. Like God's covenant with Abraham, this new covenant, well, it wasn't contingent on human faithfulness at all. This new covenant unilateral and unconditional. Said, said differently, under this new covenant, God wouldn't require people to keep their promises to him, which is good news because they couldn't, we couldn't anyway. But instead, he promises to keep his promise to them or his promise to us and just like had been the case with Abraham all that is required for an individual to find peace with God is to trust or to have faith in or to believe that God would keep his promises and moreover and this is so cool as it turns out the inauguration of this new covenant signaled both the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and the fulfillment of God's covenant with ancient Israel that had been established at Mount Sinai. This was like the once and for all covenant that changed everything for everyone. This was the message that launched the church. This is the message that was carried with joy into the ancient world. That God had done something for everyone in Jesus. And now everyone was invited to be a part of this new and, and so it's not surprising that when you read the letters that make up most of the New Testament, like those authors spend a lot of time celebrating what had been accomplished when Jesus established his new covenant by his death on the cross. And just for, for one example, I love how the author of a letter called Hebrews 
articulates the relationship between the old and the new covenants to early Jewish Christians. Because if you think about it, they had questions. What are they supposed to do with all of their traditions and all of the rules that had marked their lives since they were born? Here's what he writes. He says, but Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant. It's not just new, it's, it's better, which has been enacted through better promises. He goes on, he says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. And then he says this, in speaking of a new covenant, he made the first one obsolete. Now, isn't that an incredible statement? Okay, so as interesting as all that is, it would be fair to ask, what does this mean for you and for me? And what does it mean for what we should really know before we try to read the Bible? And what I'll do is I'm going to point you to our big idea for this talk, and it goes like this. Implication for you and me, not all of the rules in the Bible are for you. And this is really important because you have never been a part of God's covenant with ancient Israel. Neither have I. And a few of you have Jewish backgrounds, and I'm honored you're with us, and I know you're exploring faith in Jesus. You were never part of God's covenant with ancient Israel either, simply because that covenant was fulfilled before you were born. And consequently, because not all the rules in the Bible are for you, it's absolutely critical when you're reading the Bible that you know where you are in the story. As much fun as it is to just kind of open the Bible at random and start reading, which one of the things I did when I was a kid, didn't always go well, right? You don't know where you are in the story when you do that, and you can find yourself reading things that make you feel like you have to unintentionally place yourself under rules that were never intended for you. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that while the Bible tells one glorious story of God rescuing the human race from sin and death in order to restore the peace he intended for us in the beginning, it tells a story through a series of covenants. And, and by the way, that's why the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament can really seem to be different gods. And that's why when we read some of what God asked the people of ancient Israel to do, like not to eat bacon, which so clearly comes from heaven. Come on, we're preaching now, right? Yeah. And we think, why would God do that? It's like, but those different instructions make sense if the people are under a different covenant with God, a covenant with a different purpose. And I was, when I was out researching for this talk, I, I found a quote I just love from a pastor named John Piper that in a recent book. He said this um, about the interaction of the, the rules, the religious rules. He says, to be sure... Many instructions and rules and religious practices and rituals from the Old Testament are no longer to be practiced. He says, but this is not because these practices and rules were wrong. But because they were temporary. They came with an expiration date. And they were pointing forward to the day when Jesus Christ would fulfill them and thus end them. And then he says this, the coming of Christ did not abolish them. At one point, Jesus actually says, I have not come to abolish Torah, which was the Old Testament rules, but to fulfill it. The coming of Christ did not abolish them, but it did make them, and look at that word right out of Hebrews, obsolete. And I'm telling you, that is good news, not just for ancient Israel, but for us today. Because it's news that not only changes how you read the Bible, but it's news that can actually change your 
life. And so, my friends, that is the first thing I believe you should know about the Bible. Okay, so now before I close our time in prayer, I want to point you to a couple of opportunities in the new year this morning to help you engage with this content. Uh, the first thing we decided to do just for this series is to bring back, we're very retro, very like pre-pandemic, um, a printed discussion guide. And we've got them on the way out on, on both the gathering spaces. We'd love you to grab one. There's actually some verses on the back that you can kind of revisit and read through. But just grab one of those on the way out and then have a conversation with whoever you do lunch with today. You can say like, oh, we're going to do it on Tuesday. But you're not going to do it on Tuesday, let's be honest, right? So just grab it on your way out and have a little conversation over lunch just to kind of interact with, with some of this material. It's a great way to start to process, you know, what you heard and, and again, what, what I think you need to take from it. Um, and the second thing, I'd like to remind you, Hannah's going to be out at the Next Steps desk. If you're new around here or even came new since the pandemic or even you've been around here for a while and you're like, man, I would love to just meet some people, hear some stories, go a little deeper. We would love to plug you in to one of those community groups. And just, you can just, there's no obligation. You know, just go over and take a look at what's available. If it lines up with your schedule, I would just encourage you, jump in in this new year, meet some people. It really does take the church from like an event you attend to a community with which you can belong. Uh, and then just one more thing. Um, if you came in here this morning and you're like, yeah, that was really interesting about the covenants. Um, fascinating. Might listen to that again. But um, I really just came to get some prayer. And if that's you, we'd love to invite you under the left screen um, after I pray for us. And we would love to spend some time just praying with you um, and encouraging you in any way that we can. And so uh, for the rest of us, why don't we stand um, and I'll close our time together. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> Heavenly Father, uh, this morning in this place, we thank you for the amazing grace with which you have showered us all. A grace that flows from the love that you have for the people you created and you created all of us. Thank you for making a way where there was no way. Thank you for offering us peace with our creator and the hope of a life with you after this life and in this life. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus, that he came among us as light and darkness to show us the way and then to be the way. We will forever be grateful. It is in his name, a name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part two of six things you should know about the Bible.